Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. I'm your host, Soini Koch. Certainly, U.S. job losses due to globalization and outsourcing have been a hot-button issue lately. And a study I was recently reviewing put out by the University of California said that up to 14 million jobs have the potential to be outsourced. My guests today, Monty Hamilton and Ingrid Miller from Rural Sourcing, Inc., have a great solution. And I actually think it's kind of one of the best-kept secrets in IT. And I was asking them prior to the show, like, why haven't I heard about you before? So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jorgeny. You can find out more about Rural Sourcing, about Monty and Ingrid on our website, CEOExclusiveRadio.com. So, Monty, tell us, what is Rural Sourcing and how does it work to keep jobs here in the U.S.? Yeah, well, first of all, so, you know, thanks for having us on the program. We, we hope to, uh, with this program, address what you said is a big problem here, which is a secret uh, that we don't want to keep anymore. Uh, rural Sourcing is an IT outsourcing company. We do software development, software testing with a twist. Instead of doing this offshore outside of the U.S., we do it here in the U.S., in smaller cities where we can have a cost advantage in those cities, where we can create a cool Google-esque kind of software development look and feel for our centers, uh, employ 100 to 150 software developers in those places, and, uh, and create tons of value for our clients and give them a real alternative going offshore uh, by doing this here onshore in the U.S. Now, is rural sourcing a, like a thing that's happening in the industry, or is it that just your brand and the name of your company? We're, we're, we're lucky. We say uh, it's always nice to have the Kleenex brand of tissue, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, industry-wide, uh, the phenomenon is referred to as rural sourcing. Now, it's a little bit of a misnomer in our case. We're not in truly rural areas. We're not taking farmers off of their tractors and teaching them how to code in JavaScript. Uh, but we are in smaller cities, right, mm -hmm. uh, that may have been overlooked in the past for the talent that they have, for the quality of life that they have. And we go in and we take advantage of that by offering great jobs, great careers for people who are interested in technology, who want to create a career in that. But in the past, so any, they've been forced to make a decision to either have a vocation or a location. And if they choose vocation, they had to move somewhere. We want to erase all that. We want to democratize software development in the U.S. We want to let them live where they want to live and have a great career and exciting place to work. Now, Ingrid, in terms of the operations, you're the COO. How does it work? Do you have people co-locate? Are they in specific cities? Like you have one in like a second, you have a bunch of centers in second tier cities. How does it actually lay out? Yeah, so we um, currently have four development centers with plans for many more throughout the U.S. And so um, beginning in Jonesboro, Arkansas, we have development centers in Augusta, Georgia, Mobile, Alabama, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we are um, coming into a development center. We're creating this great environment and, and building a place where they can put their head down and, and work on code or gather in a, in a scrum stand-up room and talk about the, the plan for the, the, you know, the program or what they're working on, as well as um, new setups for pair programming, which is really something that's kind of taking over the software development industry. Well, tell us about that. 
So And we, it's P-A-I-R? Yeah. So the idea being that two brains are better than one uh, and that, you know, each individual brings such great experience and expertise, but it's different. And so by putting them together and seeding them, giving them both access, both have keyboards, both have mice, both have access to the program and, this, and looking at screens together, they can, one can, can drop a line of code and the other can come in and, and finish that for them. And so they're literally finishing each other's sentences and helping each other with different expertise. Wow. Monty, the rural sourcing as the trend, what is it? Is it growing and how fast is it growing? Is it making a dent in, the, in, in outsourcing? What's the actual numbers behind the trend? Yeah, sure. Well, it, it, we think it's making a dent, uh, but it's a small dent today, to be honest with you. So, you know, this is a $30 billion industry. The Software bro- development? Software development, uh, outsourcing. The large players have traditionally been um, India-based, Asia-based uh, offshore players. Uh, some of the larger U.S.-based players like Accenture or Deloitte are also obviously in this game. But there are, let's say, a dozen now pure domestic sourcing companies out there beyond rural sourcing uh, that do this. And we think we offer a unique value. The thing that encourages us about this is that uh, not only are those dozen or so domestic sourcing companies doing it, but even the larger offshore outsourcing companies are beginning to take notice and, and in some cases set up their own centers here in the U.S. Obviously introduces more competition for us. We think that's great, honestly. We believe that a rising uh, tide lifts all boats. Uh, and we think we're the best at it, frankly, because we're focused on it, right? This is all we've ever done. This is the only model we have. Uh, and we've perfected that model over the last seven or eight years. And we know how to go select cities. We know those cities are going to work. We know those cities where we can amass that amount of talent and provide real value for our clients. Bunch of questions. In my head, I'm thinking that there's, you know, a price differential. You can go to, um, forgive the term, cheaper cities sure. and find people for maybe less money than you would pay in the larger cities. But is there really um, a savings relative to places like India or Asia? I mean, to me, that's hard to imagine. So what's the real differential in terms of the the numbers around what people can save? Yeah, easy sort of uh, rule of thumb, right? Um, If you're, let's say, paying 30 bucks an hour in India or somewhere, uh, Bangalore, we're going to be probably... uh, two to two and a half X that cost here in the U.S., but probably half cost that you would pay in Atlanta or New York or Boston or somewhere like that. Um, the key, though, is the fact that even though we're more expensive on an hourly basis, uh, the productivity that we get at three to four X that you might get offshore simply outweighs that cost differential. Um, and the way we do that is, as Ingrid mentioned, the software development that's going on today is much different than it was in the 90s and the 80s, right? We did that, and it was very elementary kind of code, move this kind of stack to a new stack. Uh, there was not a lot of creativity going on with that. Today, um, you get tons of creativity, right? Uh, it's almost a mix between a scientist and an artist when you get a great de- software developer, right? So they can understand what the business needs to get done. They can write code so that it works on your tiny little mobile phone and create something that's great uh, user experience at the same time. In the past, when the U.S. started uh, offshoring largely in the um, 90s, you needed hundreds of people to kind of amass this level of uh, effort and get get the work done. Today, you need SWAT teams of 10 to 12. Um, And so we can provide that. We can provide the agility to ramp those teams up quickly. 
have them understand exactly what the business problem is that needs to be solved, uh, and then have them complete that in a short, short period of time. In terms of the branding, does the Made in America piece help you at all as well? Like people who really want to, quote, buy American would look at you and say, you know, this is something that we want to do. Yeah. So here's the reality. Um, I, I believe we're, we're all. We in, love reality. Yeah. Here. Here, <laughs> CEOs are very realistic. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a capitalist. Right. And so anyone's <laughs> pitching me, it needs to have a good economic value. Um, and that's what we base our um, solutions on. Can we provide a better economic value than your alternatives? And we think we can because of what I just explained. Um, now, at the end of the day, if we can do that, then honestly, I think um, we and our clients both go home at night and sleep a little better because of that U.S.-based uh, knowledge that you're creating jobs, you're creating careers, you're feeding families in places where, listen, these are smart, smart people. They would be employed anywhere they choose to be. They just have decided to live in Albuquerque, New Mexico or Mobile, Alabama. Uh, they'd still be employed there, but I don't think they'd be doing the kind of cool work that we give them the opportunity to do for great clients that are based in New York, Atlanta, Dallas, um, even Silicon Valley. Do they do they move to the cities for you? Uh, no, that's a great thing about software development. You don't have to move, right? Uh, we put these cool Google-esque, in fact, interesting uh, side note here is that out of the five buildings that we're in, uh, for those on the National Historic Register of, of Buildings. And uh, we Google-esque them up. Uh, they're you know, loud colors, beanbag chairs, foosball tables, all the things you would expect of a Silicon Valley software development shop uh, without having to leave Albuquerque, New Mexico. Think about this trend. One of the things I was curious about on a previous show, about two or three weeks ago, we talked with Greg Chestnut about 12 technology trends that every CEO needs to know. They were things like automation and 5G. And I'm wondering what, where did those, like all this disruptive technology that's happening, where does that intersect with your business? In multiple ways. So I think automation is a, a large trend, right? I think what, what if you look back to the 80s and the 90s and the number of software developers that it would take to do certain tasks, um, everyone, CIOs everywhere are looking at how can I do this quicker, faster, more efficient and challenging their partners like us to say, how, do we, how are we testing large-scale applications much faster, right? In, in using QI automation, how are we building tools that are helping to improve and, and speed up the, de the development process. And so I think we have a big focus, um, you know, just identifying a VP of innovation within our organization to, to invest in how are we staying ahead of the trends. Uh, and so I think automation is one. I think, there, you know, as we look at our clients and what they're doing, the Internet of Things is going to be a, a huge opportunity for us. Um, we are currently looking at um, not just taking that data and helping our clients with visual analytics, but ways in which we can be bringing tools that that put together uh, disparate groups of information and add value back to our clients. Mm. I keep hearing about the Internet of Things. I'm like, when is this going to actually come? I've been hearing <laughs> about it for years. Well, it's here. It's here. All of your all of your uh, all of your devices are, are gathering data. That the future is how we use that data, right? I mean, big data is really we've been hearing it for years. Uh, the difference is it's been gathering, but how we, we make use of that in the future. Yeah. So if I could jump on that just for a second. In fact, I had um, hosted a dinner in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, uh, two nights ago, and there were a dozen CIOs there. And one of the big topics that we discussed was the Internet of Things, 
one of the other software companies that was there uh, services the uh, rail industry. And one of the things that they they have been kind of doing Internet of Things before it was cool or given that name. But they monitor the rail systems and the cars and they can do now preventative maintenance. Right. So they can understand when things might be about to break and send signals so they can go out and repair those things before they happen. So this is kind of a real working example of the Internet of Things. Similarly, um, CIO, who's responsible for one of the larger airports um, in the U.S., uh, wants to make it a better experience before you ever get in the airport, not just in the TSA line, uh, but as you pull in. I would settle for that. <laughs> <laughs> I would just settle for that. Like, they, if they can handle that, then I'm cool. We did discuss that. And, and, uh, <laughs> um, some of that's beyond his control. But he said, as you pull into the airport property, ideally, your car notifies them that you're on property now, and they can tell you, here's Sogini is your parking space that's available for you in level two, section 33 right? Uh, and so you're not driving around a lot looking for a parking spot. And so there's all kinds of things now, or before you even go to say, hey, what is the TSA line look like right now? Uh, and so I think there's tons and tons of ways to make our lives, make our experiences uh, much better. And it's one of the things that we, we love being about in this industry. Hmm. Now, I have to ask you, especially with all the talk about hacking that's been in the, in the air lately, is there not some freak out factor about like this Internet of Things and like people being able to hack into my car and my phone and my pacemaker? Yeah, <laughs> there, there certainly is. I mean, just a, a week and a half ago, there was a massive hack of, of DVRs and, and, uh, and systems like that that took down many of our many, many websites that we all recognize and use on a, on a daily basis. It's very concerning. And it's part of the reason we put a focus on secure coding practices. And, and it, it, you know, I think it's nice to think that, well, my, my application isn't client facing. It's not necessarily open to the web. It's, um, it's an internal application. And the reality is everything has to be looked at. We, we take a very hard focus on um, what are we doing to make sure, because today it may not be used by your end client or your end customer, um, but it could in the future, right? As we get more transparent with our, with our clients and, and our clients get more transparent with their end customers, we're always thinking about that because it is a big concern. Yeah, I think with that fear, uh, the nice thing about that is it also drives innovation on the other side of how do we make things more secure, right? So one of the other topics that we discussed at this dinner a lot was the use of blockchain coding technology, which, which is Inger will have to explain in much more technical detail than I. <laughs> Uh, but essentially, it's a way to secure the transitions uh, or transactions of information in between your machine and my machine or between your transaction that goes to your bank and back to you so that it, it's unhackable, right? It's a huge topic in the industry right now. And large, large companies and even some smaller companies now are beginning to invest in that technology. And uh, I would say beginning to run the experiments, right, of how can this work? How can this make those transactions more secure? And Ingrid may be able to jump on that as we are beginning to look at some of that ourselves. The interesting thing for our industry and the Internet is it was built on some of the vice industries. So unfortunately, pornography and, and gambling and other things are what led to innovation. And blockchain is really being innovated by Bitcoin. The idea that there is a secondary currency is what has driven the tech here. I think what all of us in corporate America and, and others are looking at is the technology is, is really great, right? It, it's not just about Bitcoin. It's about the underlying blockchain that they're utilizing. And, and so not just, you know, the banking world, but also 
folks like our clients are looking at how can we be using that technology in the future. To everyone listening, we're talking about rural sourcing, and that's a trend towards using U.S. talent for IT development versus offshoring um, or taking those opportunities overseas. Our guests today are Monty Hamilton and Ingrid Miller from Rural Sourcing, Inc. I want to turn the conversation to talking a little bit more about your company. In the second half of the show, I always like to talk about the relationships that make business work because no company is founded by one person, one CEO, one leader. How how do you build a, a culture? I initially thought that you were you you were working remotely, but it sounds like everybody is co-located. But how do you go about building a culture that supports your success? Our culture is very much our people, right? And and when you look at the tr- the teams that we're trying to build and the environment we're trying to build, we are going out and and attracting folks who were working in Atlanta, New York, and Boston for places like eBay and Disney and Boeing, very high-end experience, talent, have worked in in some of the most cutting-edge IT and and other departments um, throughout their career. And they're moving back to raise their families. They have aging parents or they're looking to be uh, back home. Identifying folks in mid-career who have worked in the area, have worked within more cutting-edge technologies. You know, some of the folks that we're starting with have COBOL. They may not put it on their resume, but that's where they began. And then on the flip side, we're pulling folks from colleges who have cutting edge things like Ruby on Rails and Python and other experience and putting those folks together. They're bringing this very diverse background of expertise and experience. And, you know, the the young folks are challenging other, you know, ideas and things that we've done for many years. And so I think it's really the teams that we're building that, that are our core of our culture. One of the things that I'm hearing and I've heard this in in kind of the public discourse that in the workforce, we have five different generations now. You know, there's a lot of talk about millennials and how difficult they are to work with, et cetera. How do you foster like the intergenerational connectivity and having somebody maybe work somebody work with somebody their kid's sure. age, you know? Yeah. I, I think actually our model is set up ideally for that. So, in fact, uh, we talk a lot about the apprenticeship model. Right. So we bring in college students. Uh, We have a robust internship program. So while they're still in school, ideally, uh, we're giving them an opportunity to work, do software for large corporate America kinds of clients. And they learn um, to take what they know from the classroom and apply it to the real world with a coach, with an, uh, an apprentice model so that the person who's been working in the workforce and doing code for 15 to 20 years is sitting there side by side with them imparting their knowledge of how they get around things and how they deal with uh, maybe difficult clients or difficult consumers on the other side of this and how they think through those problems. Um, So when they come out of our world, and we just had this conversation the other day, we give people their first chance oftentimes to get into this industry. That's great. Larger corporations are a little more risk averse, right? So they don't like hiring people who just graduated from college and may not have practical knowledge yet. We love doing that. It creates a huge, great cultural advantage for us. And by putting them in the teams with folks who have that experience and can help them break through problems quicker, they don't butt their heads against the wall quicker, and vice versa. Uh, Let's face it, these students are coming into the workforce having grown up with mobile devices in their hands, right? And so they have a lack of fear 
that's unbelievable. And so they get into the workforce and they don't see problems. They see an opportunity to be challenged and solve that problem. And so putting all that together, I think is a great advantage for us. The, mm-hmm. the disadvantage, we just talked about this the other day, is that you know, our, our job is uh, all about people. We produce people. Our clients, they produce great life-saving drugs and cars and tissue and other things, right? Uh, but we produce people. And sometimes those clients turn around and look, well, you produce some really good people there. And after their year three with you, I'd like to have them, right? And sometimes that, that works out for them. But oftentimes our colleagues uh, are in these locations because they love the quality of life, right? As we talk about all the time in Augusta, we know our colleagues there can leave work at five o'clock and be at their daughter's volleyball game at 515. You and I both know in Atlanta, you, you might make it by seven if you're looking. <laughs> yeah, might. Yes, you, 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 you can hand them a towel as they walk off the court at the exactly. end of the game. Um, and, and so that gives us an advantage, again, uh, I think, by producing uh, the kind of talent that large corporations want but don't know exactly how to, uh, how to bring into the workforce. Mm. So what's your best recommendation for building culture to CEOs who's, who's listening to this show? Best recommendation, I, I would think, is... Um, get out and, and, and talk and most importantly, listen to the mm. people that you're working with. Mm. I mean, they are on the, the front lines. Uh, and listen, we're, we're not perfect. Uh, we work at this every day. Uh, we get out. We're, Ingrid and I both are out in our uh, offices as, as much as possible, probably not as often as we'd both like to be. Uh, but I will tell you what is truly rewarding is when you go and visit your software centers and you hear the stories of the uh, Bronze Star awarded Army veteran who took his uh, money at the end of his career in the Army and began to take some coding classes, and you give him his first shot to become a software developer, that's pretty special, right? And you come back from those visits and you hear those stories and and you're fired up. You're going to be in the office really early the next day and late that night making sure that this thing is going to work. So tactically, how do you how do you uh, talk to people and listen? Because obviously you're busy, both busy. You know, you have this company to run and you have stuff to do and numbers to, you know, process and, you know, clients to serve and all that. So how does that actually look? So one of the things we we actually um, have just started doing this year, we, we do town halls and monthly roundups and, and various stand up and get, you know, opportunities for, for folks to talk. Uh, but this year we've started to do what we're calling open Q&A forums. And myself or our VP of professional services or other um, folks on the executive team are going out, sitting in a room with 20 to 25 of our colleagues and giving them an open and transparent place to ask anything they want. To be honest, it has been Um, Some of the most fulfilling and thoughtful and I have seen more passion out of our team, even if it's like they want change and they're demanding of certain things to make their work environment what Mm. they want. Um, And how great is that? Right. I mean, uh, we can sit here and we can build a place that we think they're going to like. But if they build the place, if they really um, provide their input into what makes the culture what they want, that I mean, that's ideal. Mm. And how do you follow through? So like, let's say, I'm, and I'm just thinking for people listening, so you have this town hall or you have mm-hmm. this Q&A and they give you feedback. We want X, Y, Z. What's the follow through to make sure that it actually happens? Um, it, a large project plan and a lot of initiatives. We we have, okay. in fact, I mean, come up with a lot of things that have come from this group. We've created committees. Um, and, and what we're looking to do is not just say, oh, okay, great. Let us take that and go fix it, right? We're saying to the team, how many of you, which ones of you would like to be a part of that solution, right? Mm-hmm. So 
bring the problem, but also be a part of how we, we go and make it, 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 uh, a resolution. Mm. So, yeah, I think, uh, on, on top of that, I think one of the things that, that we have discussed, um, here is that, uh, we need to get better at, um, running the experiment, right? Let's try it, right? May not work, may fail, but let's use the agile software development methodology that we preach and talk about all the time in our own organization to say, you know, this group of people seem to really want this thing. Great. Let's go try and see if it'll work right now. There's some limitations to the, you know, the dollars and things of that, that have to uh, make sure we work within those constraints. But, um, I think it's important for us to, uh, run those experiments. Let's see how it works. And, and if it, uh, probably more oftentimes than not, it will work given, uh, given the right, um, idea of what that outcome is supposed to look like. Last question, which goes to the point that you just made about the dollars and cents. I'm very big on rules of thumb and benchmarks and things like that. I was speaking with um, another CEO about the commitment to this because people, you know, it's it's a platitude, you know, invest in your people, talk to them, blah, blah. How much time or energy, if you were going to quantify, like how much should, should, right, a company be investing in this, these kinds of things, if you were going to give a rule of thumb or a principle or something that people could think about? You know, I would probably answer that question with another question, <laughs> which is how much do you want to get out, right? What's the return you're looking for? Um, and if you want mediocre people, mediocre results, then probably not a lot. If you want better than average, you want uh, best in class, then that's where all the stuff is going to come from. That's where your innovation is going to come from. That's where your motivation is going to come from. Uh, frankly, that's where your sales and revenue is going to come from. Those motivated, passionate people who not only believe in your product, but they believe in the why you're doing this. Uh, and again, I'll turn it back to, I think that's why we have an advantage. Uh, I think we are in this, to your point earlier, to your question earlier, we don't go in wrapped in the American flag saying we're creating U.S. jobs but it is a huge part of our mission, right? It is our mission. I get that. Right. That's what we're going to continue to do. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Monty and Ingrid. And to those of you listening, we've been talking with Rural Sourcing Inc., a company that uses rural U.S. talent for software development rather than uh, taking those uh, opportunities overseas. On Thursday, you can find out more about them we're going to have summarize the key takeaways at ceoexclusiveradio.com on our weekly blog. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Have a prosperous, productive, and very profitable week. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.